0: MSW Media
1: The Supreme Court issued a ruling that has left women in Texas unable to exercise their reproductive rights. Is this the end of Roe v. Wade? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before we bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to James Fromeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonski, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. So, Patty, I have to say, for many folks, and I think for all of us, really, this really came as a bit of a surprise. People did not expect... A ruling in the shadow docket that effectively ends the constitutional right for women in Texas to obtain an abortion.
0: You know, I am, it's not that I'm not surprised, it's that this has been a long time coming. I've, you know, been talking to people for the last 24 hours about this because this was the problem going all the way back actually to when Roe v. Wade. Uh, was a was a case when the, the decision was made was the injection of all the evangelical groups, a lot of Christian groups, the Catholic groups, um, everything that Phyllis Schaffley sort of folded in in order to get her agenda across when it came to stopping the ERA. And under Reagan, Reagan was not necessarily uh, pro-life in the sense that we see this big movement. You know, in the radicals, we see there were kidnappings, there were bombings, there were murders uh, over the last 30 years when it came to uh, abortion clinics and anybody who was deemed to be somebody who supported abortion. Um, You know, and, and for me, this goes to, you know, the appointment of Clarence Thomas when nobody would believe, well, not nobody, but when Anita Hill's testimony was not regarded as significant enough to stop that appointment. And, and then of course, you know, whether it was uh, people not wanting to vote for Hillary, cause they didn't see the big deal of, you know, well, what difference does it make? Or I didn't like her or her emails or all those things. I'm tired. Renato is what I'm telling you is that this has been coming. This has been the long game that Republicans have played and, and Democrats have been asleep at the wheel. That's how I feel today.
1: I think it's, it's something that is just, it is, it's horrifying for women who, in particular, who have not only, I think it's, it's essentially a statement to them that their own bodily integrity is not valued as much as other people's, Mm -hmm. right? And then I think it's particularly scary for women who are in a situation where, hey, they may need to exercise their constitutional rights and they may they're worried about doing so and i i think you know what surprised me about this from a kind of tactical <laughs> perspective is yep. that when you and i have had conversations in the past and we've had a number of them you know about reproductive rights there there had been a sense that Reproductive rights were essentially going to be whittled away little by little, potentially by this new, uh, you know, conservative majority on the Supreme Court, or conservative—I don't know if you want to call it conservative right, right-wing, whatever you want to call it—majority on the Supreme Court, and that it would be death by a thousand cuts, little by little, those rights would be whittled away. But I don't think that we what we saw coming was something that. Was this uh, swift and in this fashion? I mean, that's really something.
0: I have to, again, you know, when Coney Island was appointed, I am. That, look, the reason we were in such despair obviously, the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was significant and it was devastating, but most of us felt that this was the end game. That once Coney Island was appointed, that it would be this. I, I don't. I, I'm sorry, but you I. Mean I Con- you,
1: you mean you mean yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't.
0: Yeah, I, whatever. It's you know, uh, this was what we saw coming. This was this was why we kept ringing the alarm bells. You know, and and yes, the idea that women are less people didn't care when. Again, I know the people did care, but the people who voted for Donald Trump didn't care when he said, "You can just grab them by the pussy," that. Right there, told you everything we needed to know about what, how Republicans feel about women's rights. And during the, the appointment of of uh, Kavanaugh, when uh, Collins was like, you know, went on talk shows saying there's no threat to to Roe v. Wade, it, it, it always seemed disingenuous and untrue. That the fact that she had to say it meant that it was in danger. Uh, but I guess I think from a legal aspect, from your point of view, it doesn't seem like it would have been that uh, that. I guess, uh, stark, but this is what I have always expected for ever since, honestly, uh, for me, the, the real th- fear became, was when, uh, they stopped the count in Florida during the Gore v. Bush race that, you know, that, that showed me that the, the weight of the Supreme Court and, and how they were willing to inject themselves in the direction of our country.
1: From my perspective, uh, what was, what is, so disturbing here is, you know, we have been seeing for quite some time the whittling away of reproductive rights for women in certain states in this country. You can call them red states, whatever, where there's essentially two categories uh, of of people here. There's women who are in states where their reproductive rights are, uh, are protected, like the state that you and I live in, where you know, women do, you know, have access to reproductive care. And then states like Texas or Oklahoma or other states where there's so many burdens that are placed on it that as an effective matter, even though technically speaking, you have the right to an abortion, to, to obtain an abortion if that's your choice, that, you know, you might have to go halfway across the state or have all sorts of other burdens put on you to exercise it. But here, um, this this law essentially, you know, is creating it's essentially targeting um, abortion to the extent that effectively uh, women, you know, very after a very early point in their pregnancy would would be effectively denied that right entirely. And the Supreme Court isn't even, you know, you would ordinarily have a big oral argument. There'd be all sorts of lead up where people would say, oh, well, this is the case that may overturn Roe versus Wade. And we'd have a big discussion and people would be prote- pre- protesting uh, uh, protesting that. Here, this sort of happened in the dead of night, you know, after very little consideration on a kind of emergency basis where a 5-4 majority, um, you know, essentially said, no, we're going to let this Texas law stand. I think it's got broader implications because what it essentially says is if there's a, if, you don't like a particular constitutional provision, you can create a law that flouts it and, and you can get away with doing that as you know, and I think encourage this sort of behavior on all sorts of fronts from other states. So just a very dangerous precedent. And I think something that people should be very alarmed by, regardless of how much this strike, you know, hits you personally. I think this is a, a danger to everyone.
0: Well, and well, two things. Let me start with uh, with Illinois. When you mentioned that Illinois has uh, good, you know, strong protections when it comes to women's autonomy, uh, you know, I, maybe that's why I've been sort of engaged in this. When Trump won, Illinois legislators were swift in making sure because the uh, there was language in legislation dating back to Roe v. Wade in the 1970s. That in the event that Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was trigger language that in that event, then Illinois would automatically revert back to abortion being legal, it would be illegal. And that included certain types of birth control. So HB 40 uh, passed, uh, I believe, before Trump was even inaugurated or slightly, not long afterwards. And then they also expanded access to abortion in the state of Illinois so that women who were on Medicaid or were state workers had the same sort of access. That other women did in the state. So maybe that's why I already felt as though, you know, there were people who were starting to look at the uh, look ahead. I also work with personal pack and talking about parental consent, and I know that that's going to be a tough one, but I think that, that they're going to start to look more strongly at how we approach that because you know going to now what's happening in Texas in the six weeks. I've had people tweet at me. (laughs) One guy said, well, that's fair and reasonable. After about six weeks, a woman should know whether or not she wants to have a baby. Renato, I didn't know either time I was pregnant that I was carrying a child or that I was because I wanted to. I was trying to get pregnant. So the only reason I knew was that I was hoping. And that was why I took the pregnancy test at the time that I did. I didn't know that I was. And at six weeks, a woman is not even experiencing any of the things that might be the telltale signs like. Nausea or fatigue or swollen breasts or any of those things uh, you know and the, the the way they they track it is you, the conception might be two weeks before, but they go back before before that because the embryo is already developing once it's in seven okay, well we can get all the science of that but the idea that six weeks is enough time eighty five to ninety percent of women don't even know that they are pregnant at six weeks this is this is dangerous in so many ways um, whether you know we can talk about how There's no exceptions, even in the cases of rape and incest. And those are the the tragic cases. But it's across the board, Uh, you know, what women and then I'm so angry right now. I can't even put all my thoughts together. This is horrifying. It really is.
1: Yeah, I I think that what I, I hope people are seeing here is that. This is an issue that strikes to the heart of, you know, whether or not people have full dignity as human beings, whether you have full control of your life. And, you know, we talk about a lot of issues we've talked over the last, gosh, what, I don't know if it's been two or three years now, Patty, maybe <laughs> almost three years. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about different issues, but this one uh, is, is striking at at the heart for a lot of people, not just you. I think you're speaking for millions of women who are frustrated who are complete like their dig- dignity isn't being respected, and there's many women out there who are downright scared of what could come down the pike, right? What this majority in the Supreme Court could lead to. I will say that you know there was a lot of predictions and a lot of you know co- concern when Kavanaugh came into the Supreme, uh, entered the Supreme Court, and then of course when Justice Ginsburg passed and just just Justice Barrett replaced. Uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg, what would happen? And I do think there were some who thought that, oh, you know, everyone's concerns were overstated, and it turns out that that was absolutely not the case. Right. Um, One thing I do before I bring in our guest, I do also want to acknowledge you've had a little bit of time that's passed since uh, our last podcast. I want to thank you, if you are listening now, for sticking with us here and seeking us out and listening to the podcast after an absence. Uh, As you guys know from Listening in the past, uh, all of you, I did. I, I not only had a big move; I was moving in with uh, my new family here. Uh, but which is very not it cha- brings its own set of challenges. But I've also had some uh, illness, uh, serious uh, illness that I've had to deal with as well. And so, um, um, uh, I've been uh, trying to take care of myself a little bit here, and I'm fortunate now to be in a spot where I'm feeling up to reengage. So I hope that you don't. Begrudge me the short absence, and uh, I'm glad to be back with you, and I'm also glad to be bringing in our guest, Leah Littman. And Leah is uh, an assistant professor of law at Michigan Law School, and she writes on constitutional law and particularly has talked a lot, and is really follows the United States Supreme Court. She clerked for Justice Kennedy, uh, who we talked about a moment ago when he stepped down And she is somebody who has been all over this particular issue, has been out there. You may have seen her, read what she's had to say, uh, heard what she's had to say. And she has her own podcast uh, as well that you should check out called Strict Scrutiny about the U.S. Supreme Court. All they do is talk about the Supreme Court. They're the Supreme Court nerds of podcasters. Uh, And uh, I think, uh, you know, she is somebody who can give us a lot of insight into what exactly is going on here what we should be concerned about, and what very well may be happening next. So let's bring in Professor Littman. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Littman.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So I wish we were talking to you about a, a topic that at least from our perspective is more positive, um, but we're concerned about what happened, and I think in, in part struggling to understand all the details. I know a lot of listeners are trying to understand What happened here wasn't something that in advance people were really focused on. Can you help us understand what the Supreme Court did the other day?
2: So what the Supreme Court did is it allowed Texas to enforce its controversial heartbeat bill while the law was being challenged as unconstitutional. No court has yet decided whether the Texas law that effectively prohibits abortions after six weeks from a woman's last period no court has decided whether that law is constitutional, and what the Supreme Court did is to say, while abortion providers challenge that law, the state gets to put the law into effect.
1: You know one thing that I think is worth noting is it it, it, it seems to me that it's hard there, there's not, there shouldn't there can't be much dispute that under existing precedents, the, the law that law would be unconstitutional. Is that fair to say?
2: I think that's exactly right. Given that, again, the law effectively prohibits ninety percent of the abortions that were being performed in Texas because it doesn't allow doctors to perform abortions on women more than six weeks from the last period.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely an unusual thing. Uh, just put at a high level, like putting aside the specifics here, for a law to be passed by a state that's patently unconstitutional, and for the Supreme Court to say we're going to allow this. To go into effect while we consider this case is, you know, is this something that has happened before?
2: It is very rare that the Supreme Court would do this and do this in the manner that it did. The court, again, allowed the state to enforce a law, which, as you were saying, is conceitedly unconstitutional under existing precedent. And the court allowed them to do that, not because it said it was going to change the precedent and overrule Roe, but instead rested on some threshold procedural questions about some unique aspects of the Texas law that it maintained prevented the court from Preventing the law from going into effect. But the reality is that doesn't change the effect of the court's ruling. By allowing Texas to enforce this law while it's being challenged, the court allowed Texas to effectively prohibit abortions.
1: Can can you help us understand? I think a lot of listeners may be wondering, like, what is this procedural stuff? I mean, it's it it it's gonna sound to a lot of our listeners like it's a dodge. Like you're not Resolving the issue. And so you're, you're resting on a technicality, right? That, that's how it may seem to a non lawyer. What, what does this even mean? How, how would you explain it in, in a way to them?
2: So, in most cases, when a state passes a law that prohibits certain conduct, you know, here performing an abortion on most women, the state is the entity, the government lawyers are the ones who will enforce that law. So, if you violate the law, some state or local prosecutor will bring you to court. The Texas law, however, completely outsources the enforcement of the law to private citizens. That is, no state official can bring a lawsuit against an abortion provider for violating the law. Only private citizens can, and every private citizen can bring a lawsuit. Usually, when you are trying to prevent a state from enforcing a law, you sue the state official who is charged with enforcing the law and ask a court to prevent them from ever enforcing the law. Here, however, the state withdrew state enforcement from the law and replaced it with private enforcement, therefore raising questions about who the plaintiffs should have sued in order to prevent the law from going into effect. Again, because there wasn't going to be a state prosecutor bringing these lawsuits against abortion providers. And the Supreme Court said that question, the question about who was the right person or persons to sue was sufficiently unclear that the court would not block the Texas law even though, again, it is going to conceitedly ban abortions, most abortions in Texas.
1: Yeah, it sounds like essentially what the court is saying is that women in Texas have to essentially be bringing their own lawsuits in order to have any sort of relief. Is that essentially the, the what a woman in Texas is left with if she's trying to exercise her reproductive rights?
2: What they are saying is that you... Abortion providers have to wait to be sued by one of these private citizens to challenge the law, because what happens is the abortion providers have already stopped performing abortions that would subject them to suits under this law. So if the court isn't going to allow the abortion providers to sue the various state judges or private individuals In order to get a federal court to say this law is unconstitutional, then what will happen is the court is effectively forcing the providers to wait to be subject to one of these suits in order to challenge the law authorizing the lawsuits. But those lawsuits might never happen because, again, the providers, out of a fear of subjecting themselves to tens of thousands of dollars in liability under this law, have stopped performing abortions in violation of the law because the law is now in fact.
1: Right. Essentially, it's, it's saying the, the law doesn't say you can't perform an abortion. It's saying somebody, anybody in the state can sue you if you do. And then you've got to pay the costs of defending that lawsuit. You might win. You might lose. And then there's I believe there's a provision in this law about attorney's fees as well, saying that you can't get your attorney's fees back if you win. Is that is that right?
2: That's exactly right. So if you are sued under this law, you can't recover attorney's fees or costs. And beyond that, the law also doesn't allow people who are sued or courts to ask for or award sanctions against people who bring frivolous lawsuits under the law so it is again subjecting abortion providers as well as people who assist women in obtaining abortions to a bunch of spurious lawsuits that threaten to bankrupt them
1: uh, i can i think of another law that said uh, that a judge can award sanctions if someone's abusing the judicial process that that strikes me as if not uh, unprecedented certainly extraordinarily unusual is that is that sound about the same to you
2: of course texas has really bent over backwards to make this law as punitive as possible on abortion providers so that when, if ever, it was allowed to go into effect, it would definitely shut them down. And their gamble paid off. All of their various procedural maneuvers were enough to get this new Supreme Court to allow them to, again, effectively ban abortions in the state.
1: The enforcement mechanism here, of course, is private citizens... Bringing lawsuits against whether it's using providers like, for example, a, a doctor or um, a medical facility, or as you mentioned, people assisting others in exercising their reproductive rights. What would be the incentive? What what money or other incentive, other than being just you know uh, a vexatious? Would uh, would someone have to bring a lawsuit like this? What would they be seeking?
2: So the law allows them to seek tens of thousand of dollars in damages under the statute. And so that is what they would receive. They would also receive an injunction that prevents the person they sued from performing abortions or assisting with abortions um, in violation of the act.
1: One one question that uh, people have had is about this, the level of assistance. I know Patty has been Collecting some questions from our listeners, can you can you kind of uh, talk about some of those, uh, Patty?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously people are wondering about the aspect of the bounty, you know, the, putting a bounty on someone's head. One question is, if giving aid or considering aid is grounds for suit, then could a woman's employer be sued or her bank as well? That's
2: very possible. One of the more pernicious things about this statute is it is written in very broad terms and we don't know how far it extends. And that uncertainty, that lack of clarity is part of what will isolate people seeking abortions and deter people from assisting them and possibly encourage again different individuals and entities to police the people in their lives and try to prevent them from having abortions.
0: And then how far does that reach? If if someone asks, am I subject to the Texas bounty hunters if I from Massachusetts arrange a flight for a woman to get an abortion there?
2: So there are due process limits, limits grounded in the due process clause about who can be sued in Texas. You can't be sued in Texas courts unless you have a sufficient connection to Texas. Now, if you are engaged in transactions with someone in Texas and facilitating their travel from the state, it is possible that you could be sued. But again, the reach of this law is very uncertain. It is not written in a way that is explicitly limited to suing people in Texas. And it's possible that people would try to institute lawsuits against people outside of Texas.
0: Uh, Let me just just real quick, I, I just want to know, so is there, you probably have already said this, but I really need clarification. Is there anything like this that exists anywhere in the United States when it comes to being able to put a bounty on someone's head who participates in illegal activity to this extent or what's considered to be illegal?
2: There is nothing like the Texas law in a few respects. One is no law that authorizes even some private citizens to enforce the law withdraws the state entirely from enforcement. No law authorizes private bounty hunters to go around searching for people who assist other individuals in exercising their constitutional rights. The Texas law contains all of these things and others that make it unique and uniquely pernicious um, and differs from other laws that have some similarities to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to offer my perspective, and Professor Lippman, please correct me if you disagree. It there are it, there are circumstances in which having private citizens bringing a suit, more generally, can be obviously an, an important part of enforcement. You know, for example, let's say there are private. You know lawsuits regarding securities violations or things like that, right? Where, or, or, or you know, consumer prote- you know fraud cases. There's all sorts of cases where there's a determination made, as Professor Lippman said. Where sure, the attorney general of a state might bring those actions, but also a private citizen could as well. And usually, there are limitations on the recovery there and the type of suit to ensure that only worthwhile suits are brought. Uh, by private citizens and are and that they can only recover when there's something meritorious there. What What's interesting here and what I think reveals the intent behind this is that they've gone out of their way to encourage bad lawsuits. In other words, by saying you can't be sanctioned by a court for abusing the judicial system or that you can't have attorney's fees awarded to the other side if a court finds that that's uh, appropriate, what essentially it's doing is, is removing any um, deterrence that there would be from abusing the judicial system is that is that a fair a fair perspective professor
2: yes I think that that is absolutely right you know typically the laws that allow private individuals to enforce them do that in combination with the state because the state might not have the time or resources to pursue all of the cases here by contrast, The state has purposefully withdrawn itself from enforcement in order to evade accountability for the law, while at the same time emboldening people to pursue aggressive and aggressive lawsuits and lawsuits without any basis for which they can't be punished for bringing those lawsuits. So it is unprecedented and it is dangerous in any number of ways.
1: You know, one thing that I had mentioned earlier when Patty and I were talking is that one concern I have is that this gives states uh, a roadmap for how to potentially undermine the constitutional rights of others in various respects, and I'm, you know, I'm what I'm concerned about is potentially creating a, a framework where states could, um, uh, you know, erode a, a, a constitutional rights and essentially. Um, have a fate accompli before a court uh, is able to review. I'm, I'm curious whether you think just on a broader scale this is something that is specific to this particular type of uh, – th- this particular issue of reproductive rights or whether this is setting a precedent uh, that, might ha- that might be uh, abused by a state in another circumstance.
2: It certainly has the potential to be abused by other states in different circumstances. So imagine a state that says only private citizens can sue if they suspect someone is carrying an unlicensed handgun, and you can sue any citizen for carrying an unlicensed handgun and receive tens of thousands of dollars, and there can never be any attorney's fees against you. And, you know, perhaps a state would enact that law in order to evade the court's interpretation of the Second Amendment. Um, that being said, I am not sure that we are going to see a symmetric response to the Supreme Court decision nominally greenlighting states passing laws that undermine constitutional rights without having a mechanism to strike them down. Um, This law, as we were suggesting, violates so many norms and procedures integral to the rule of law. The idea that the state shouldn't try to evade accountability for unconstitutional laws, the idea that people who bring frivolous lawsuits should be sanctioned and therefore frivolous lawsuits deterred, the idea, again, that states just can't take steps in order to purposefully evade courts reviewing the constitutionality of laws before they go into effect and force people to violate laws in order to challenge them. All of those principles weigh so strongly against the passage of laws like Texas's that it's possible we will only see states who are super committed to undermining reproductive rights and have no commitment to the rule of law enact laws similar to Texas's. We have some indication that Florida is considering enacting a similar abortion restriction, but I personally would be a little surprised if a bunch of other states tried to enact similar laws regarding other constitutional rights.
1: One thing that we've talked a lot about in this podcast is norms. And how norms at times have things that we have taken for granted have actually been norms and not laws, and the degradation of norms, and you know there uh, there has been some discussion relating to the Supreme Court of something called a shadow docket. in fact, um I believe Justice Sotomayor – or no excuse me Justice Kagan, in her dissent, mentioned the term shadow docket. It's been used relating to certain practices at the Supreme Court. Is that part, when you use the term, or is that part of what's going on here? How have how how the practices of the Supreme Court changed?
2: So the Supreme Court has willingly accepted a bunch of requests for emergency relief and has granted forms of emergency relief on the shadow docket you were referring to. And the shadow docket just means cases that haven't received full briefing and cases that weren't argued. So the court has willingly enjoined several coronavirus-related health measures um, on First Amendment grounds. It enjoined a New York law on due process grounds. So the court is not averse to stepping in and issuing injunctions against laws that it thinks are unconstitutional. The fact that it didn't step in and enjoin this Texas law, the disparity in the court's treatment of different constitutional rights is part of what makes the court's actions on the shadow docket so indefensible. The court is willing to protect some constitutional rights, but not others, and it will do so again on an expedited basis without argument and without full briefing. You know, many people weren't watching this case, and that's partially because it wasn't scheduled for oral argument. People didn't know there was a chance that it would make its way to the Supreme Court. And the shadow docket is the structure that partially allows the court to evade some kind of public attention and public accountability for its rulings.
1: Yeah, I think there's an element to which these procedures of an oral argument and full briefing and other things are... are you know, not only provide fairness to the litigants, they provide a level of opportunity for others through um, an amicus process to be heard. Um, and it also provides, as you point out, it, it puts attention on this topic. This came as a surprise to people um, for the reasons that you just said. I, I, I will say that, um, you know, for, for some folks, this, um, came as a surprise um, for others. You know, Patty was talking about how, for some, this wasn't a surprise to them because in their minds, uh, as soon as Justice Kennedy um, retired and Judge Justice Kavanaugh came in uh, in his place, was appointed in his place, they were they they were concerned about something like this happening. We've talked a lot about um, kind of how this is particularly unusual. But there's an at a higher level, there's a lot of folks who are predicting some sort of at the very least modification uh to uh the the roe versus Wade precedent and, and Casey and so forth. and what I'm wondering is, based upon what we know now, obviously I'm not you you can't read the minds of the justices. you don't know the future. but what does this help us understand? Of course, we have, for example, Chief Justice Roberts sided with the dissenters here. Um, I, I, what well, can you help us understand about what is coming next and what this means for the future of reproductive rights uh, in the United States? To the best of your own, I understand that it's a big question.
2: I think this court will allow states to end abortion, and it will insist at the same time that it isn't overruling Roe. That's basically what the court did with this Texas law. I think it will probably do the same with the Mississippi statute in the case that the court is actually scheduled to hear later this term. That case involves a more traditional statute that prohibits abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy and is enforced by the state. I think the court will uphold that law and insist that it's not overruling Roe and Casey in the process. Um, I don't, you know, know yet whether they are willing to actually own up to what they are doing and issue an opinion that says we overrule Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But I think their actions in the last 48 hours greatly increase the odds that will happen.
1: Can you explain, because I'm sure there's people listening who are like, how can you not over be overturning Roe versus Wade if you're upholding a law that bans abortions after a know after a fairly short period of time in the beginning of pregnancy. Um, can you explain how the how how that's possible to to the, some of the lay people and non lawyers who are listening?
2: I mean, it isn't possible. On the substance, that is, when I say the court will issue an opinion upholding these laws and insists that it's not overruling Roe, that doesn't make those opinions right, and that doesn't mean they are persuasive, and it certainly doesn't mean they're correct when they say we're not overruling Roe. Roe and Casey stand for the proposition that at no point before viability can a state prohibit or unduly burden a woman's decision to end her pregnancy via abortion statutes that prohibit abortions from being performed you know, after six weeks of pregnancy or after 15 weeks of pregnancy concededly prohibit abortions before viability. But what the Supreme Court could end up saying is, well, what Roe and Casey allow for is for women to try to get an abortion at some point before viability, not at every point before viability. Now, again, in practice, that will make abortion inaccessible because you are allowing states to effectively prohibit abortions at such early points that women might not be able to access abortion care or might not even know that they are pregnant. But the court will write the opinions that it will write. And that doesn't mean we should accept their statement that they're not overruling Roe. It just means we shouldn't necessarily expect them to issue an opinion that says we overrule Roe and Casey.
1: Just so uh, so everyone could understand, this obviously would have a, a very serious immediate impact. But there has been talk about, for example, there was talk in the presidential campaign of a pres, of a federal statute that uh, essentially guarantees reproductive rights, not via the Constitution but via a federal law. And would that be effective? And uh, and you know how would that work?
2: It could potentially be effective, and the reason why I say it could potentially be effective is that that federal statute that attempted to protect abortion rights would be subject to constitutional challenges before this Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is hostile not only to abortion rights, but also to congressional efforts to protect civil rights and rights that aren't favored in their eyes. So it's very possible that this court, the Roberts Court with a 6-3 conservative majority, would overturn a federal statute that tried to protect abortion rights and secure them via federal legislation. So yes, if a statute were passed and if the statute were allowed to stand, it could protect abortion rights, but we don't know whether this court would allow that to happen
1: that's right and everyone should also understand that that would of course also require that a, that a that both houses of congress would pass that and that would include uh de, you know defeating a filibuster in the senate so i would think that would mean 60 votes in the senate um as well as a majority in the house um and of course it's unclear uh, by the time that 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 uh that that uh law would be considered, you know, which party would be in the majority in either of those given that the Democrats have a very slim majority in both, an extraordinarily slim majority in both houses at this point. Yes. <laughs> so, I I've got to say uh Professor Litman, I I have learned a lot here. I I appreciate you explaining this to us. I I you know, one of the you know, I've been I've obviously I've uh, been paying attention to what you've been saying for quite some time, and as well as Professor Shaw and Murray. But I, I really want to give tell you know give you an opportunity to talk about your podcast, which I mentioned earlier. Can you tell us a little bit more about what strict scrutiny is about, and and what what sorts of questions you're usually focused on there?
2: Yes, so Strict Scrutiny is the podcast that I co-host with two other law professors, Melissa Murray and Kate Shaw, and we cover anything that the Supreme Court is doing, so the cases they hear on their regular docket, as well as any orders and opinions they release on the shadow docket. So we explain opinions that the court issues. We also break down oral arguments that happen at the court. And we also try to provide our listeners a window into the legal culture that surrounds the court. So we've spent several different episodes explaining what the shadow docket is and the rise of the shadow docket. And actually on one of those episodes, my co-host Kate jokingly threw out the possibility that the Supreme Court would use the shadow docket to gut row and evade accountability or responsibility for it. So we try to highlight trends and developments in the Supreme Court and talk about the cases they are hearing as well as the cases they might hear. And while we often go into the legal weeds of the cases and discuss you know, the procedural arguments on one side or another, we always try to focus on the practical implications that these cases will have.
1: And now if folks, if you know, want to, they're like, okay, now I'm, I'm sold. I want to listen to strict scrutiny. Where, where do they, where do they find it?
2: It should be available on all of your podcast applications of choice. So Apple, Stitcher, Google, you name it, um, just search for strict scrutiny and you should be able to find us.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a very difficult topic uh, for us in a lot of ways because it's something that Patty and I feel strongly about. And we just appreciate you joining us and lending your expertise. It, It has been really informative.
2: Thanks so much for having
1: me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.